0: Bullshit.
1: Don't bullshit, bullshit. 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 Fucking bullshit. bullshit. <laughs> so, welcome to the Bullshit Filter, Andrew uh, Hout. Is that how you pronounce your last name? Yes, it is. You got it right. Uh, most people don't. And you are in Columbus, Ohio, give um, or take? I actually that... live
0: in a smaller town, Worcester, Ohio, which is close to Columbus, but... Um...
1: I graduated. Worcester? Was that what you said? Worcester. Worcester. Okay. Yeah. You graduated what? Uh, from Ohio State. And
0: I, I graduated with a degree in history. So I spent quite a few years wow. in, in Columbus. Um, it's, I, I go back and forth sometimes. Uh, I'm still pretty familiar with the area.
1: And uh, did that degree in history play into your f- career?
0: Uh, it never has, which is unfortunate. And I think that's something that a whole lot of people here here deal with. If you get a degree in liberal arts, you really need to specialize and go further. And I was unprepared for that. So I work in manufacturing now, which, as I think I've told you several times, I'm, I'm not real thrilled with, but
1: they got me. So you live in China then?
0: <laughs> yes. Um, yes. And I got to tell you, I started working in manufacturing about the time I started finding podcasts. And I have learned so much about um, class struggle, uh, what it is to be the, the workers now. I'm, I'm one of them. And uh, I've a whole new outlook. Read a lot, learned a yeah. lot, experienced a lot. I see it every day. I see it in everything.
1: Well, tell me, tell me more about that. Tell me about class struggle in Ohio. Well,
0: okay. I, uh, the company that I work for, manufactures drainage pipe. It's very stratified, which I'm having a hard time with. I'm one of the very few people there with a college degree, yet I'm having a very difficult time moving up beyond where they they want me. If conditions were better here, I would be looking for a different job. But I'm so secure there that I just go along with it. We had our annual reviews and any bonuses and raises suspended uh, due to COVID because they gave us two weeks of paid vacation to use if we needed it, which sounded great. It was marketed, sold to us, fantastic. Uh, But no raises, no bonuses, nothing like that. Uh, Come to find out that our stock today in checking has completely recovered and actually passed where it was on March 3rd when it was at its previous high. So that's just that's just today's example.
1: But um, I'm sure that their revenues will probably take a hit. The the sort of lack of alignment between revenues and profit and share prices is something that most investors are scratching their heads about right they now.
0: They have a year-to-year that they improved from last year to this year. Their revenues when, were, higher, were higher than the year before at
1: this point. At this point, year on year? Yes. Well, that's crazy. How, how does that happen when America's been in lockdown?
0: When COVID hit, I went from working five days a week to almost assuredly working six days a week. It, it made us Oh, it,
1: really? I don't really? understand that. Wow. But right. we've been busier. Fascinating. hmm Okay, well. Good to know. Um, so obviously, um, you I invited you onto the show uh, as, along with sort of a blanket invitation to all of our American listeners um, who are in riot hotspot protest areas to come on and, and help me and everybody else get an on-the-ground perspective, I guess, that's not through the eyes of the mainstream media about what's going on. Um, And, you know, I I guess I'm still trying to explore not only what's going on, but why it's going on and uh, what happens from here. Talk to me about your experience of the protests and uh, associated riots in Ohio. What's it been like for the last week?
0: Well, even in the very small town that I live in, which is a small, classic Norman Rockwell cow town. In America, um, I noticed yesterday that the courthouse had a series of dicks painted on the side of it that were not there before the protest started. Um, so but that that's that's really making light of it. Um, every city in Ohio has had uh, a hard time. Uh, Cleveland today, which is another city I've lived in, that, that's probably the city in Ohio I would call home if I would call any city in Ohio home. Um, they have been barricading the approaches to police stations. Literally, it, it, it looks like a, a forward operating base in Iraq or Afghanistan. It's completely militarized. That's been going on a long time, but you just don't see it, um, like you do right now. And that's pretty similar in Columbus. Same thing I hear in Cincinnati. All, all the cities are pretty much having the same approach. Um, it's been a quiet day i read about, read it about any riots today, but, uh, it was hot over the weekend. It was ugly. Um, I am curious to see what happens this Friday.
1: If you know, uh so for the record, we're recording this on the evening of Wednesday, the third of June, your time. Yes. You're obviously people can't see you, but you're a, you're a white male college educated what is your view on the uh, underlying reasons for the protests? Talk to me about why this is happening.
0: Well, I, I think it's a it's a lot, and that's going to be a cop out. But let me let me drill down into that. As you say, um, Americans are just. Everybody has something to be angry about, and that doesn't make us any different from anywhere else. Um, I consider myself very, very, very lucky to be here, having been around the world. Most Americans do not understand how lucky they are. Um, but as I, it's, it's society's very stratified. There's the, the inequality gap is real. I always thought it was bullshit um, until, again, I got to see it from a, a the perspective of a. Family man who is stuck in manufacturing, um, it's, it's hard to break out. I, you always feel like you're going to be crushed. You're always in debt. The, the debt clock in New York is just, I've watched that since I was a little kid. I remember my dad pointing it out when it was at $30,000 per, per person to pay off the national debt. It's, I think it's now 280. It's, it's in triple digits, and it's insane. Um, your wife said that there's a tension in the air. Was it you? It was either you or your wife. I can't remember. Um, there's definitely something to that. I think everybody that lives in the United States has this just feeling of foreboding and tension that they, they don't know where it even comes from, but everybody's aware that it's there. So I think there's just a lot of anger boiling up. COVID really turned up the temperature, and then um, as soon as I saw the the what happened to George Floyd, I I, I knew it was going to get ugly, and I, we're, I think it's, I don't think, even though things are calm right now, I don't, there's going to be another escalation soon. Um, we have an election coming and every, nobody's even speaking about it, which is different than any other election cycle. Every, it's almost like nobody wants to think about it because of the potential, how ugly that's going to be. Nobody's going to win nothing is going to come out of that election that makes anybody somebody's going to be very much more angry depending on who wins and the winners will be slightly less angry it's just there's no way out and i think everybody feels that it's it's like a singular a singularity your use of the word anger
1: <clears throat> excuse me resonates with me um i think I, the the impression that I have, and I haven't been back to the US for a couple of years, the the impression that I get is Americans are an angrier people. Yes. As a society, than I think Australia is. Um, Australians, well, you said everyone has something to be angry about. I, uh, Australians, uh, I don't get that here. People hmm. may may want for more. They may be dissatisfied with certain things or unhappy about a policy or something that's going on. But I don't think uh, Australians are generally an angry people. We're not angry at each other, but I do get that sense in America that people are just angry at I, each other. There's a actually, lot of anger.
0: If, can, I, can I interrupt you there for one second? I want to, I, I definitely yeah. do want to restate that. Um, not that everybody on the globe has something to be angry about the way we are. Uh, I, the Dominican Republic was the last foreign country that I visited. And you're right. There were people that literally did not have two nickels to rub together, and they seemed content. They were not complaining. They were,
1: they were satisfied people. So why do you think Americans, if their if premise is, has some validity to it, why am, are Americans angry as a people?
0: well we're constantly told and shown how how great it is how how great it's supposed to be here how great we are how lucky we are and you know the people that are used to to market that image aren't usually the the people that have to bust their ass and live paycheck to paycheck um that's a very there's a whole lot more to it than that that I'm I'm sure I'll think of as soon as we're done recording um
1: so is it that differential between we're being, we've been told for you know at least 70 years <clears throat> since the end of World War II that you're the lucky people, that you're the best people in the world, and it's the best country in the world and the most successful yes. country in the world, but at a day-to-day living level, a, a large percentage of the population don't feel very lucky?
0: Yes, and now I, I've recently come to see how that, that message – is more of a, a tactic than anything else. It it was a, a Cold War tactic.
1: Yeah, I agree with you, but I was thinking it's funny because Australia has called itself the lucky country for decades, my entire life. I, one of our politicians, I, I can't remember exactly which one, but I think it was somebody in the 70s referred to us as the lucky country. And we think of ourselves as lucky, but it's for different reasons. We're lucky because we're life is pretty good here you know we we don't have a lot of violence we don't have a lot of uh social tension we we have um you know a pretty comfortable life doesn't matter it doesn't matter where you are on the socioeconomic scale and listen there are exceptions to that our indigenous population uh asylum seekers who we throw in concentration camps etc but generally speaking i think most australians feel lucky to be born in australia or to have immigrated to Australia.
0: It looks that way to me, at least from here. I've only ever met a couple other Australians besides yourself. Actually, they're the only ones I ever met in person at a
1: wedding. They sure seem like very happy people to me. Um, And to be clear, I don't consider myself a patriot. I think patriotism is dumb. And as I said to a, a guy on the weekend, I was having lunch at his house and we were talking about this. I said, I don't think of myself as a patriot. I feel lucky. To have been born in Australia. I think Australia's got a lot of things right. We've got problems and things that are wrong too, and a lot of room for improvement in a lot of areas. But I think generally speaking, we've got it, we've developed a pretty good system where, you know, we do have a safety net. Um, So I feel pretty good about where Australia is at in many respects. But um, I don't say that as a patriot i just think you know a combination of the work of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people over the last 50 years to get us to this position and i was just lucky enough to be born into it but uh, that's the difference in my head between being feeling like we've got a pretty good model and i'm lucky to be here versus being a patriot that does i don't think we're superior because of that it's just combination of circumstances, geographical distance, low population density, uh, big mining um, uh, economy that's managed to export a lot of shit, particularly to China in the last 30 years, uh, et cetera. Anyway.
0: You triggered something there that I wanted to say uh, about patriotism. Um, I graduated from a public high school, typical suburban average guy and it wasn't really until halfway through college that I stopped, that I looked at that word patriotism differently. I would even take it further. I was a, a nationalist. Um, that's what uh, Americans who come out of high school are casual nationalists just by by default. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then at at I'm almost 40 now. I see the more you learn the more you get past that point i think that's where the the anger starts to build americans don't have that optimistic feeling anymore luck and we we might feel lucky i i feel lucky i don't feel optimistic
1: yeah right i don't feel optimistic about the united states either um you know i've been feeling pessimistic about the united states i think since 911 um uh, and, and America's response domestically and internationally to 9-11. I think you turned a corner. Geo Geopolitically, um, internationally, I think America was dangerous well before that, but uh, certainly with the tensions that arose in the culture from 9-11 onwards, um, I've been feeling for 20 years that... Um, it was headed down of, it was it was spiraling uh,
0: yeah, in, that, it was
1: in a deaths death spiral the singularity yeah that was the singularity, not that, eleven
0: that's what that's what it feels like since then it's just this you know feedback yeah. loop, and it just keeps going and yeah. going and going
1: yeah and you're a historian, I'm a fake historian um, <laughs> you know the there's uh, it's hard for me to shake this feeling that I've seen this before. I've read about this. I know, I I, I know the story, right? I know what this looks like. I
0: have too. I've seen this movie before and over and over and over again, uh, you know, the big uh, empires decay, they fall apart. I never would have thought about thought of the United States as an empire until I, I, you know, I got acquainted with everything. I got acquainted with history. It took, history to show me that we're a a corporate empire
1: um yeah you're a different kind of empire but an empire nonetheless we're a corporate corporate. fact, i've been reading i've been reading michael hudson's book um super imperialism from i think he first wrote it in 1971 he's updated it a few times then are you familiar with hudson he's an american historian um
0: not off the top of my head i was going to compliment you on archie brown though that book was
1: fantastic um go on about Uh, hutchinson which book, which book? The um, rise and fall, or the yes, latest rise one? and fall? Right. Yeah, the latest one too is a masterpiece. Um, he's a he's a tremendous. Uh, I, uh, I mean, I think he's more harsh towards the Soviets than I would be. He takes a harsher view of a lot of stuff. But that said, I think he's uh, fairly balanced and tremendous. Um, yeah, Michael Hudson. Yeah, he wrote a book in the early '70s called Super Imperialism, and he sort of explains his view of American imperialism as a, a unique, a, an evolution of imperialism. And I guess it was sort of um, it's an it's economic hegemony, global economic hegemony, without the requirement of military hegemony, although of course you know you do have the military overlay there to make sure that people uh, obey the military is uh, always and, and a backstop yes, that's why you have eight hundred bases around the world and a seven hundred billion dollar a year Pentagon budget it's not um, it's not by accident, but yes, it was you know he he explains how, as a result of World War I and World War II, America was able to engineer itself into a position of global economic dominance, and it weaponized that uh, in a way that was unique in, in to, to, to establish an economic empire, uh, an economic block unlike any that had been seen Probably ever in history. I mean, we could make arguments about Rome, ancient Rome, etc., but really, in in modern terms, it was uh, an economic because there were no competitors left. Really, I mean, British had their trading block, but they only had 25% of the world, and they had to go and invade usually to get grab that power. Uh, same with the French and the Spanish, etc. But um, America was able just to use money to buy control when the rest of the world went through two world wars that the u.s were barely involved in
0: i am so i am so sorry i'm very bad at interrupting on this because there's thoughts just pop um every time you bring up the civil war i want to talk to you about uh i took a course it was called the rise of the american empire in college it was fantastic and it it basically laid out the uh, uh, from the triangular trade through the Civil War and what that accomplished, and it it labeled the the Panama Canal. The opening of the Panama Canal was the biggie. That enabled us to do everything as a as a country protected by two oceans. That was that was the doozy. That's what allowed us to get involved everywhere and back it up. Uh, World War One and World War Two only just added to that.
1: Yeah. All right. Let's get back to um, what's going on. So, talk to me about as a as a white educated man in Ohio, your view of um, the George Floyd incident and uh, police brutality in the United States, specifically regarding your minorities. Um, what what, have, what are your thoughts on it? The the police
0: in this country have been out of control for a, a while now. Um, they can they can the guys I know that became cops they they just all they fit a a certain profile. They 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 became cops because they wanted to be able to get paid to fight for the rest of their lives. I'm sure that's not everybody. I only know two people that became police, but um, everybody is afraid of the police in this country. When it comes to being black, I'm going to say what a lot of people in my position would say. And I I know black, I have black people at work. I, there are African, I'm friends with black people. It's, I don't, I don't see that in my head. And I'm sure most Americans feel that way. But the casual hardwired racism is is there um just because it's it's just so subtle you don't even notice it my My parents are not racists, but growing up in the eighties, they were racist. they just didn't know it they didn't think about it. it didn't come from their heart. it was just you know what what we're taught um that disadvantage I, I i can't imagine what it would what it's like to live as that minority in this country you have to always be wondering what everybody thinks you have to always be wondering what, what you, everybody is about to
1: say you have to you just have to you're under a microscope full time can you explain the difference to me between they were racist but not racists okay
0: um growing up in the 80s out in Virginia outside of Philadelphia we moved to Ohio uh, it was not um, uncommon to hear the n-word at home um, jokes that that was a that was a common thing it, it was not it, it, and it's not and they weren't unique they were just average suburban people too um, I guess I would have to say The most casual, but probably the most destructive way, because it's the easiest way to pass it on, is jokes about black people in the United States. Mm. That—that's what I grew up hearing. Um, My man, I was not prepared for that. My parents lived, learned from their parents who were definitely racist because they were taught to be that way. Um, I think they evolved to be less racist, but it was casual and accidental. They didn't know it. Um now to my generation that lived under that, it's the same thing. You grow up, you know, with hearing hearing jokes and wisecracks and generalizations. Um and if you don't learn from that, if you don't if you don't get the opportunity that I had to see the world through a different light and see people through a different light, you don't know how wrong that is. You don't you don't know that, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, I think that's the difference between casual racism and racism, if that makes sense.
1: Right. I yeah.
0: know I spit that out in driblets and sentence fragments, but
1: I think I think you're talking about what seems to me the difference between conscious racism and unconscious or subconscious racism. Yes. Conscious racists, uh, you know, have a a worldview. Uh, where they see certain races as being inferior in some or all ways. Um, And they, they think about it, they deliberate on it, they argue for that point of view, they act on that point of view consciously. Subconscious racism, and we have a lot of that in my country, with particularly with respect to our indigenous population, but also I think uh, towards Muslims and certain sections of Australia today, that's been kind of engineered, I think, by certain right-wing media outlets, particularly those owned by the Murdoch's over the last uh, twenty years. But uh, it's a it's more of a subconscious racism here, you know. As um, I said on a live the Zoom live call we did the other day. The most insidious form of racism, I think, in Australia is that we, the white population, don't even think about our Indigenous population most of the time. They're invisible. It's called uh, an Australian um, sociologist decades ago, I mean, I think in the 50s, he wrote his book, um, referred to it as the great silence, the great Australian silence. We don't think about the Indigenous people. We don't talk about it. We don't notice them. It's not conscious. We just don't even, we forget that they even exist because they're 2% of our population and many of them live in remote regions. And so we just don't see them. We don't think about them. And that's a form of racism in a way, but it's subconscious. And it goes through to jokes as well. I remember a friend of mine in Melbourne 20 years ago uh, who definitely is not a conscious racist, but would make jokes about, Uh, aboriginals turning up for job interviews late oh well of course she was late because she's all because they're always late because they uh don't they don't understand time or they don't have the same appreciation of time or as as white people do i was like (laughs) what fucking what (laughs) what and she the person who said this uh, was like well that's not racist that's just a fact and i was like wow well as soon as you start saying they uh, as sweeping an entire race of people under this i think that is racism and whilst i'm sure there's some merit to what you're saying in that for 70,000 years aboriginals lived in this country and didn't have a clock other than the sun and so maybe their relationship to time is different to people descended from european civilizations (laughs) Uh, I think it's racist to sweep everybody under that under a rug. I think that's by definition what racism is. Uh, saying that an entire race has a certain lack of a skill or something like that. But it's that kind of stuff, not um, not as overt, not as deliberate. Although when I was growing up, there probably existed more too. You know, we would talk about ABOs, aboriginals. Our version of the N-word was an ABO, just um, you know, the ABOs you know, typical ABOs, that kind of thing. And I think that still exists in pockets of the country, but it's more regional mining, rural, farming sort of areas. I don't think that exists so much in the urban parts of the country.
0: Um, I do want to say one thing in my parents' defense, because I don't want any any you or any listeners to paint a certain picture of them. I my parents are both very good people. I love them both. If they were if we were able to replay the tape and look back. I'm sure they would be horrified by some of the things that they said and joked about. I'm
1: sure. Um, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. Like a lot of this is about awareness too. I mean, um, uh, a lot of us still today say and do things that are probably hurtful to other people. And we don't even realize we do it as opposed to me making jokes about Ray constantly. I know that that's hurting him. And I, (laughs) <laughs> take pleasure out of that um, but
0: well um, you have an employee employer relationship too
1: <laughs> yeah not exactly not exactly true um, so let's let's talk about uh where to from here for america in your view i mean it seems to me that There's only a a couple of ways this goes. Number one, it all quietens down, uh, which it seems to be doing already, if yesterday was any indication. It quietens down. This is what normally happens when you have uh, riots over these sorts of things, Ferguson, et cetera. It'll quieten down eventually, and things will just go back to the way they were until it happens again, until there's another black man or woman killed by a white cop, and then it'll flare up again. I mean, it happens all the time, but it, one happens that uh, ignites public outrage. Or secondly, it uh, it turns into a bigger movement and it persists and it brings about real change. And I guess there's a possibility that it, both things could happen. It could quieten down and somehow leads to some sort of genuine change, but I'm not really sure what that looks like. What do you... Um, or I guess the other alternative is... It continues, the riots and the protests continue, and Trump declares martial law and brings in the military as he's threatened to do, and it leads to some form of crackdown and or civil war. What are your thoughts on what's going to happen from here, Andrew?
0: Well, I think the worst-case scenario, um, it's so hard to predict anything, but I think a, a dirty war in the South American sense is about the worst case scenario. Is what could happen here. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't know um, if
1: it, explain again, it's explain Wednesday, that every, f- explain that. What, what do you mean war? by dirty war?
0: Um, well, I'm sure you 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 know this. You've talked at length about South America and Central America. Um, the government just starts to silently. Make people disappear. They can use the military one time, uh, a private contractor the next time. Um, it's just ways to, a, a dirty war is hard to pin down. You don't know it's happening. If they didn't know it was happening in Argentina until, it, and then lo and behold, 70,000 people are just gone. Yeah. Um, I could see something like that. That kind of ugly, that you, you don't even know it's a war until you look back twenty years later.
1: Well, it's it's really a manifestation of uh, a police state that yes. is yes. given and legislative I, uh, air cover. I wrote to that be able down. to just grab people off the streets. I wrote that down. I my thirteen
0: year old stepson is, you know, who I see in the future when I look ahead. I do not want him to live in a Skynet police state and mm. nobody wants that that's one thing I'm, that's part of the underlying tension that americans have a skynet type police state that we already live under it could get worse um i don't this is never going to happen i heard you ask aloud to yourself and to your wife if you, you were if, if one of you were the president of the united states what would you do and what i was gonna ask i was gonna ask you to clarify that do you what would you do for if you were the president of the United States for the president of the United States or for the long-term benefit of everyone.
1: I think Chrissy's question was, um, what would I do to address the underlying issues here? What, what should the president of the United States, assuming you had one that wasn't uh, batshit crazy, what should he or she be doing to address this situation? And, you know it's it's well, a really tricky one all i came up with was reparations i see somebody else has been arguing that recently uh, one of the black activists is saying that 14 trillion dollars in reparations are required i think it's 350,000 dollars gonna... for every Amer- african american citizen in the country
0: reparations are are going to gain momentum and be a much bigger topic now and that's a it's a that's going to be a very uncomfortable topic and it's going to be one that's hard to pin down and make sure it's done. I, I, I can't even imagine how they would go about and, and do that. Um, it's certainly deserved, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm, that needs to happen. so that's one I thought, and now this will never happen, but, um, I, if, if president Trump took, if he stepped down, um, and i'm i there's a letter that I'm sure you're familiar with. I didn't listen to all of this podcast, but Napoleon wrote a letter to the deposed the brother of the former king of France while he was in exile, basically stating that you know if he if he sacrificed his personal interests to the interests of France, that history would look on him he'd be one of the great men essentially. And, if not, and I'm paraphrasing here, that he'd have to, he'd have to walk over 100,000 corpses. Um, mm-hmm. if, if this guy that's in office, if he really wanted to get everybody's attention, nobody would see that coming. Everybody would stop. Everything would come to a stop. I think that would be loud enough and big enough that it would grab everybody's attention and really make everybody think. And he would go down as probably a much more positive historical figure than he, the trajectory he's currently on. Um, I know that's never going to happen, but <laughs> I, I, nothing short of it, nothing's gonna change. We're just gonna go into a new, we're, our, our election is several months away now, and there's no Roosevelt. Who's gonna pull us out of this? Joe Biden is not is not Franklin Roosevelt. It's not gonna get any better. It, there's, there's no other options. Um, so some the rnc and the dnc need to be decapitated that way i i think the electoral process would open up to a little more than just this two post-party system that we have that they're really the same party just under different names um mm. that's something that needs to happen term limits mm. even the confederate states of america got term limits right mm.
1: um,
0: beyond that i i don't know i don't know how you break the 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 cycle it's it has to be education for the next generations it has to the education has to start young um even in college even in ohio state university which is fantastic there's no there's no there is no racism about that university yet if you walk into the student union every corner is segregated everybody's goes to their group um that is subconscious racism i think and it's deeply ingrained that that has to be done away with um families i think the lack of families does it's it's a conservative talking point but i think if there's something to it um there is something to it
1: i i don't know cam what do you think no, just um well I, uh, just before talking to you this morning, I did an interview with a uh, um, neuroscience researcher in Richmond, Virginia, David Chester, who's been doing a lot of excellent work on studying the brains of psychopaths, and uh, this is for my Psychopath Epidemic podcast, and um, sort of a follow-up to my book. you know uh, you know you can say that if the only tool you've got is a hammer everything looks like a nail but to me one of the solutions to police brutality would be to run every police officer in the country in, and their management your your higher ups through the psychopath test through the PCLR and to screen them for psychopathy levels. Because I I remain convinced that uh, psychopaths find their ways into any sort of organization that gives them power. And I'm sure there are a lot of excellent cops. I'm sure there are a lot of cops who have very high levels of empathy, that uh, want to protect and serve genuinely. And do that to the best of their ability in your country and in my country and in every country. Like I'm sure there are lots of good CEOs and lots of good politicians and lots of good, uh, priests, but there are also a percentage of them that are psychopaths and they're the ones that as individuals can do a lot of harm, uh, will you know, continue to have their knee on somebody's neck for eight minutes while they're we- saying, I can't I breathe.
0: Let me interrupt you real fast. I'm sorry. I have to say this before I forget. The way it's set up now, the departments tacitly recruit. They leave an open door for somebody like that to walk right through without any... No no screening, no breaks. It's almost like a welcome mat.
1: Yeah. Well, that's you know part of what I say in the book, and I was talking with David about this morning, is that, unfortunately... In our societies and i think in yours more than mine but we're not far behind you we reward psychopathic tendencies without realizing it that we 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 don't knowingly do that because we still haven't come to terms with the concept of what a psychopath actually is you know we we still think of psychopath as a serial killer we think it's dexter we think it's killing eve we think it's you know uh, Ted Bundy, and yes, that is true. But that they're the least dangerous serial killers are the least dangerous forms of psychopaths psychopathy in in society. It's the uh, these other ones that do a far more damage uh, to society in general, to the economy, and to standards of living and and safety and, and the public safety, public good. So we're not, we're not even aware of it, so, but, but they do get rewarded. Um, cops that are particularly um, angry and brutal and willing to exert control in dangerous situations uh, probably do get incentivized by police forces. So but anyway, my point is that I think we need to screen out the dangerous cops. Uh, again, I, my argument with how we treat psychopaths is, look, it's not their fault that they're psychopaths, it's just the way their brain is. Architected and they probably even a psychopathic police officer probably has value, but they also have the ability to do a lot of harm, a lot of damage. And we need to figure out how to ring fence them and uh, extract the best that they have to offer, but inhibit their ability to cause harm, whether it's a police officer or a police captain or uh, a president or a ceo or a cardinal you know we need to figure out how to limit the damage that psychopaths can do and again i think that's a conversation that we're not having as a society and uh, the reason i wrote the book is to try and ignite that conversation i think we you know a guy like george floyd uh, might still be alive today. If Derek Chauvin, uh, hadn't, you know, was not given the ability to, uh, you know, uh, have the amount of power that he had in that situation because he'd already been identified as somebody with, uh, and again, I don't want to slander or or libel, uh, Derek Chauvin because I, not aware of him having sat the psychopath test, but let's say uh, for the sake of the example that people who do such things quite possibly are psychopaths Um, because there was a million other ways to handle that situation. George Floyd didn't have a, didn't have a weapon, didn't have a gun from the video. He wasn't uh, dangerous, wasn't threatening to harm anyone. The contrary was begging for his life. Um, million other ways that that could have gone down. Um, you know, you'd have to think that somebody with a severe lack of empathy it would take somebody with a severe lack of empathy to keep their neck on somebody's throat in that sort of situation. So I think we can have you surmise read the indictment? that he probably is a psychopath.
0: No. Have you read the indictment? Um, so it turns out one of the officers pulled out of his car um, a pair of, I guess it's a zip tie. Um, and that was his plan was just to hobble him um, until they figured out what was going on. Not that that's a great thing either, but, um, and he was directed to put it back and that's Rock. an indictment. Yeah. I don't know, Cam. Um, I don't know what's going ha- to See, people are going to have to make more compromises than Ray did in Vegas. And I, I don't think most people here want to do that <laughs> well I ray didn't want to do that quite honestly but
1: um, yeah well you just have to you know a hundred dollar bill waved under somebody's nose can do amazing <laughs> things quite honestly all right well andrew um I, I, I obviously it's ridiculous for any of us to to say we know what's going to happen or what needs to happen but um i Appreciate you coming on and sharing your point of view with me. It helps me, you know, try and get my head around where America is at by getting a cross section of American points of view on this. So, um, thank you, mate.
0: Well, you made a dream come true of mine, which is to be able to listen to myself. Um, so if this never happens again, I'll be doing that for quite a long time. Uh, if you, Ever want to, if you ever do a mini series on the Civil War somehow or the rise of the American Empire, something like that, I would just, I would like a little bit of your time with that too. But I really thoroughly appreciate this. It's, you know, it's a real thrill for me. Thank you, Cam.
1: Well, that, that's the show that Mike Snyder has been suggesting himself as a co host uh, for many years as well. So maybe it'll be you, well, me, we can Ray, have a Mike Snyder. All. Co host off. Okay. Um, two men enter, one man leaves. So I just uh, break yep. a pool yep. queue and throw you guys into a cage somewhere. Aggressive expansion. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll suggest that to Mike. I'm sure he'd be down for that. Thank, thank you, thank you Andrew. I had a great time. Stay safe and uh, enjoy the rest of your evening, mate. Likewise. Bye bye. Just as a bit of an addendum to that interview with Andrew, um, I was talking to Chrissy about it after I got off the call, and I was talking about the anger, which she the difference between the anger of Americans and the anger of Australians, at which the levels of anger, which she totally agreed with, but I was talking to her about the um, idea of the lucky country and the best country and the the anger how it generates from that, and she had a great insight. She said, well, lucky and best are different. And lucky comes from a place of gratitude. You feel grateful that you were born in a place where you have so much to be thankful for. Thinking that you're the best is about entitlement. You think you're entitled. She said the difference, in her view, having lived here for as we said the other day, uh, what is it, 10 years, uh, maybe nearly 11 years, I think, is that Australians are thankful that they were born here because they feel lucky, they're grateful for being born here. They don't feel entitled. Americans feel entitled because they've been told their entire lives they are the best people and the best country in the world. And then when they don't feel like they're getting what they are entitled to, they feel angry uh, so I thought that was a terrific insight, the difference between lucky, feeling lucky and feeling entitled. I'm, and I'm sure this doesn't apply to every American, as it doesn't apply to every Australian. I'm sure there are Australians who are entitled and feel entitled and are angry, and there are Americans who feel grateful and lucky. But, you know, that's just trying to get a, a sense of how the countries are perhaps different. We were never an empire. As Australians, we don't consider ourselves the best at anything. Except, you know, occasionally we might, if we we won the America's Cup in 1983, two, three, whenever it was, I think we felt pretty good about that. Uh, Very rarely we might win a cricket tournament against the British or the West Indians or something. Not that I pay much attention, obviously. We don't think of ourselves as the best because we don't, you know, we're not, we're, we're a very small population and we play a very small role in the world. I guess it's it's the difference between being part of a, an empire and being part of, well, we were part of the British Empire, but a small part, and we don't think of ourselves as being part of that. And of course, the British Empire collapsed uh, in, in many ways, many measures uh, during World War One and World War Two in the first part of the 20th century. And I'm sure a lot of British people struggled with that collapse, that feeling, hold on, I thought we were the greatest empire on earth. What happened? Where's my share of that might explain a lot of what was going on in England in the 50s 60s 70s etc anyway that's the show thanks for listening uh, stay safe uh, wherever you are and think about gratitude i read a study the other day that uh there's a there's a there's evidence of happiness there's a happiness somebody talked to me about this i heard this somewhere i don't know where i heard this I either heard it on a podcast or somebody said it to me but there is a measurable, measurable difference in happiness if you are grateful for something. If you write down every day three things that you're grateful for, and it, it lasts for like a week, the happiness bump that you get. And if you share it with other people, this person told me, whoever it was, It lasts for a month. You get a bump from expressing gratitude. I'm grateful for you. And let me take this opportunity to say that I'm grateful for you, the listeners and subscribers of the podcast, and of course for Ray. I give Ray a hard time, but he knows I love him. You know I love him. I'm grateful for Ray. Doing these podcasts would not be the same without Papa Bear by my side. And I miss not having him on these shows. I meant to have him on some of these this week, but. uh, just scheduling and it's been crazy here trying to churn all these out on top of everything else that i'm doing but anyway we will be back to a normal programming schedule hopefully if everyone makes it through this week soon be good to each other bye where would we be without our safe familiar american bullshit land of the free home of the brave the american dream men are equal justice is blind the press is free your vote counts business is honest the good guys win the police are on your side god is watching you your standard of living will never decline and everything is gonna be just fine